Hi, and welcome to Strutton Parker's Be Inspired podcast series in association with Country Life. I'm James Fisher, the property and news editor at Country Life, and I'm your host for this six-part series. Today, we're discussing placemaking, community, and digital connectivity. This is a big topic, and I'm looking forward to an interesting debate around how communities moved online at the beginning of the pandemic. But we all know placemaking and community is about people connecting in a physical way, not just virtually. Joining me today, I have Nick Robinson, Commercial Placemaking and Master Planning at BNP Paribas Real Estate. Morning, James. Morning, Nick. I have Sarah Curtis, Head of London New Homes. Hi, James. Looking forward to it. Very good. Hi, Sarah. And Ed Mansell Lewis, Director, Rural Ambitions. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure, Ed. So let's start by asking the question of what is placemaking and what does that word mean to us? Nick, do you want to set the scene for us? Yeah, sure. Really, in essence, when we say placemaking, we really mean making and and improving places and making them better for the end user. So the actual people who will be using them rather than solely trying to maximise financial returns. Really, placemaking tends to involve mixing a a wide combination of uses and, and layering them on top of one another to make more compelling places, really. So I guess a good place to start off is by saying that Placemaking as a concept means a lot of different things to different people. And it's also been probably one of the most talked about and potentially overused terms within both commercial and residential and and kind of now rural real estate as well. And it really spans a huge range of types of property and and all sectors. So it has relevance to kind of everything. And that's probably why it's so talked about. I think another important thing to say about placemaking is that it can be used to improve situations of all different scales. Um, so it can cover really tiny, small in-between spaces. It can be used on asset basis, so individual buildings. But it can also then be used as a lens for, lens for much larger situations. So you can use it on vast private estates, or you can even use it at a bigger kind of town and city scale. So I think some, I mean, some good examples of that would be on the large, large-scale interventions where the developers maybe try to pull together... A, ideal mix of uses on a big scale so if you think of somewhere like king's cross and around what they've done at the station and up to cold drop yard at the other end of the spectrum really small scale cheap interventions kind of tactical urbanism a great example i saw last year in vancouver was where they had taken a a grubby little alleyway and they'd ended up painting it out into a, a pink bright pink basketball court with hoops on it so it was just using underutilized space in a, in a really creative kind of pop-up way so you can see that the the term placemaking can cover a really a really vast range of of products and meanings for a lot of people fantastic so focusing on that sort of developers side of things sarah how are like developers playing a part in placemaking these days as nick said placemaking is pretty high on the agenda for everybody but for me it about making sure that a development isn't just a standalone entity which you could plonk down anywhere, but rather it's a product of its location and a positive contributor to it. Where placemaking really works and where developers play their sort of best role is when they've identified a common thread or a sort of core identity which ties all the different parts of the scheme together, as well as connecting it to the surrounding area. And that is crucial. Finding that common thread and looking beyond just maximising the quantum of space delivers 
means that in a multi-use scheme, the different use classes, whether it be office, retail, residential, each bring something to each other. And this ends up adding huge value in terms of a sense of community and overall experience for the end user, which ultimately also ends up enhancing value for a developer. I think we'll go on to talk about sort of really effective examples of placemaking later, but as Nick picked up, King's Cross Argent have done an amazing job there and really connecting a huge space um, into lots of different communities sitting on the outside of it. Yeah, no, I would agree. I was in King's Cross not that long ago. I mean, it was, yeah, it's a brilliant place to spend spend your time these days. Definitely more so than it was maybe 10, 20 years ago, that's for sure. I get the feeling that sort of, and I'm probably wrong about this, building a community, building a place might be slightly easier in, a, in an urban setting than a, than a rural one. We often read about how new build homes in rural areas and things like that are often not much appreciated by the community. So going to you, Ed, like, you know, what are the difficulties, challenges with placemaking in a rural setting? Well, I think part of the difficulty is that the narrative has been taking place mainly in commercial and urban contexts. And I, I think there's a piece of work to be done in introducing this as a theme to be explored in the rural context. And I'm sure we will see lots and lots of examples of placemaking done very well in the rural in, in the rural environment in a couple of years. There are a couple that I'm aware of that have been absolute masterclasses in placemaking. And they're very interesting in terms of what the benefit can be both to the community, but also to the stakeholders. Two examples I'd like to share. One is it um, demonstrates how you can increase occupation of what were previously vacant properties. And the other is an example of how you can increase revenue as a whole. And they're quite different in terms of the examples. So the first I'd like to talk about is um, there's this wonderful town called Moulton in North Yorkshire. It's owned by the Fitzwilliam Moulton Estate. It's unusual in that the, 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 the town is contained with a relatively unbroken freehold. It's owned by you know, a single family. And like many market towns, they had this problem a few years ago, which was that lots of the high street properties were vacant and people weren't really in, encouraged to come to the town because it didn't have a sense of place. One of the owners, a chap called Tom Naylor Leyland, had this inspired idea to draw upon all of the artisanal homemade produce that was being produced within 15, 20 miles of Moulton throughout North Yorkshire. He celebrated that produce in a food festival it was really really well received by the community thousands of people came and they realized that they could make this connection between Moulton and produce from North Yorkshire and so from there they went on to have a monthly food festival and so this continual narrative of you know we are the place for artisanal produce to, to have its beating heart that narrative continued to the point where they were able to invite producers to come and make their produce in Moulton. And over the past six years, 25 different food producers have come to Moulton to set up their own bakeries, their breweries. People are making gelato, people are making macaroons. They've also had interest from other sectors outside of food and beverage, like hand soaps and um, antique dealers and hotels have opened. And it all started because they really focused on what sort of place we want Moulton to, to be known for. The, the original problem they had was how do we solve this problem with, with vacant properties? You fast forward 10 years and they, now, they have a thriving high street. People will come all the way from throughout the UK to spend a, a weekend there over the, 
coinciding with a food festival or, or the monthly food market. And it's a superb example of how placemaking has transformed a small market town because they they were able to bring in this concept of of how food could be an identity of of, um, of a place like Moulton. James, can I build on the point around rural? Of course. I mean, I think the issue is, so a lot of the work that Ed and I have done within the rural space is that when you look at, Ed is completely right in saying the narrative has always been about urban placemaking. It's never really been about rural placemaking. I think a, a big mistake to make when looking at the rural markets would be to say, look, let's try and replicate what we see in the cities. I mean, sometimes it will be, there'll be positive to take from that. But a lot of the time, what makes rural space unique is the fact that it is in a beautiful natural surrounding. It kind of reminds me of this example that I saw a while ago. And if you basically, it's this idea of, of coded and uncoded spaces. I think this is how the rural environment could hold an advantage. So basically, when you look at the urban environment, it's, it's full of rules. It's a, it's a highly coded environment. So as soon as you go into an urban context, you know, there's lines telling you where you can and can't walk. There's walls and fences blocking off spaces and there's green men telling you when you can and can't move across a road. And then actually when you've got an urban space, the free space within an urban space, public realm, is more often than not private realm. And you've got security guards telling you what you can and can't do and you can't break any of the laws laid down by the owner of that space. Whereas on the other side of the coin, you've got natural environments which are, are completely uncoded. There's, there's very few rules and it's very different to the experience that a person would feel within an urban context. So an example of this, and again, this is not my own example, it's one I saw, was if you put it in the context of if you're in a, if you're in a city and you found a fountain and you stripped down to your pants and jumped in, the police would be called and you'd be arrested. Whereas if you do that in, in nature and you're at the scene, you, you know, you do the same thing. That's just applauded as an activity you do. So you can see the same action merits a very different reaction because of the different environment. Within the rural space, I think sometimes just celebrating what you have rather than trying to replicate something which you've seen in urban spaces is, is probably the most successful recourse. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I can also confirm from first-hand experience that if you strip down and get into a fountain in a city, you do get arrested. But that's a story for another time. So naturally, I don't know if you guys have heard about the pandemic that happened this year. I'm interested to know with the context of placemaking, how pandemic and various lockdowns has sort of affected that and what's, what's happening now, what's changed? If I may, I think what's changed is that there's been this extraordinary appreciation for the natural space we have around us. That those of us that are lucky enough to live in the countryside, thank our lucky stars. Those people that live in a flat in London or some other built-up city, they really yearn for that access to to green space. I think the pandemic has brought us down to our our hunter-gatherer natural selves, and we sort of realise what's really truly valuable to us. And you know, all sorts of people are breaking the laws and. Take, for example, Dominic Cummings. You know, he, he went to Barnard Castle. He didn't go to Winnow's Triangle. He, he wanted to get outside into green space and was willing to break the rules to do that. I just think as landowners and as advisors to landowners, we need to understand the majesty of the resources that we have. And so often we don't put a value on those assets. I think this has been a very, been a difficult but a very important experience in understanding how important the natural environment around us really is. Nick, Sarah, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as someone who's been fortunate enough to have spent time in both country and the city during lockdowns, I was massively grateful for having the space in the countryside. But I was also pleasantly surprised when I came back into London and into a fairly large scale residential development in which we live, because there was 
an even greater sense of community than the last time we'd been there. And I think that everybody's talking about reconnection with community and um, the importance of it. And I think it's not that we've forgotten in the past or been unaware of how important community is to us. I think it's just that a lot of people have had their communities elsewhere. If you're spending the majority of your time in the office, then your community and your network is naturally the people that you're working with. Whereas as soon as you're no longer allowed to go into the office every day, then your network in terms of your human contact network becomes a lot closer to home. So people are really re-engaging with their community around where they live. And I think in terms of how the digital side has helped with that, certainly in a new build development, I think a lot of people can think it's it can be a very soulless place to live. But I have to say, I've had better and more varied connections with neighbours living in a new build development of 400 flats than I ever did living on a terrace street. And because you've got that ready-made community all sort of living, because everybody moves in more or less around the same time and there are management network that helps you stay connected. So there are WhatsApp groups, there's information coming out over the development Instagram to coordinate people and obviously bringing everyone out for the NHS clapping on Thursdays in the first lockdown. There were people playing musical instruments in the residents' courtyard and everybody was informed about this through digital networks that kept that community active and talking to each other. I think I having thought that coming back into London during lockdown was going to be a very sort of confined experience, I was really pleasantly surprised to see how the digital network enabled that community to really stay in contact with each other. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think you've raised an interesting point about community, which I think a lot of the, the rhetoric has been, oh, we now have a community where there wasn't one. But I think your point that actually there was always a community, it was just somewhere else and you know as you said like it was in the office because that's where you spent all of your time that's a that's a really interesting point yeah and how that will change as things hopefully (laughs) develop and get a little bit more back to normal whereas at the start lots of people seem to think that offices were going to be uh, abandoned (laughs) forever I think everybody is a coming around to the reality that it that's not necessarily (laughs) the best thing and B, I think lots of people want to get back into offices and spending time with their colleagues on a face-to-face basis rather than a FaceTime basis. And I suppose it's whether that collective memory of the importance of the community around where you live, how long that stays and whether the roots have gone deep enough over this last eight months to to make a long-term difference in that or whether everybody will sort of shift back to concentrating more on the community around where they work. I hope that there is a long-term shift in the dynamic and people do balance their own community between office life and home life a bit more. I'd agree with that. Nick, do you have any any thoughts on the state of communities in 2020? I was in North London for the entire lockdown and although there were definitely 
difficult elements to it. For the most part, I enjoyed it. And kind of building what Sarah said, there were elements of community which suddenly came out, which I didn't know existed previously. And, and most of them tend, they might have been promoted via digital channels, but ultimately they're physical networks. You know, the, the working from home thing, again, as someone who lives in a flat, it, uh, it's not necessarily the ideal situation to be in at the moment. We've done quite a lot of research recently about what we think the future of, of the workplace will be. I mean, personally, I don't think working from home exclusively is a great thing. I think it should be a mix of both. And I, I don't think working from home will necessarily be a real long-term trend. I think we've got to look beyond this small period of disruption and, and look for further afield. I mean, I think people have been gravitating towards cities for, for a long time, and I, I don't really see that changing in the long term. There's been this move to the countryside, which I think has been great. And I, I think people will certainly be more appreciative of green spaces, but I can't see the trend of urbanization being reversed in the long term because of because of the coronavirus. But that being said, I would say that people spending more time at home would have a really or could have a really beneficial effect on communities. It's a, it's a very strange thing that we spend potentially three hours a day of your day commuting each day. So if you didn't have that and you were working from home, say, a couple of days a week, you'd have a lot more time to engage with the people you live near, so within your local community. And the other thing is you spend a lot less money on commuting, and in which case you'd have a lot more money to spend in your local community, which, again, would be a massive positive. Being a, this concept which has gained quite a lot of traction in the last year or so, which is the idea of the 15-minute city. This is a, it's a concept which I think came from Paris or, or Melbourne. And basically the, the premise is that all the amenities that you require are within a 15-minute walk or cycle. So removing that requirement for the car, which I think could be a, a fantastic thing. Now, obviously, this is primarily an urban concept because you can't say to people in rural communities, you know, drop your car or move all the amenities within 15 minutes. But I think, if the, I think if the parameters were changed a little bit and maybe the retail that people required, the healthcare people required, maybe some you know, awesome bit of flexible workspace nearer to rural communities, I think that could have a really, really positive effect on, on the UK as a whole. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree with that. Focusing on the working from home aspect and a sort of that extra three hours a day, do we think this is a permanent change in in lifestyle not necessarily everyone working from home all the time but people having more hours in the week to spend within their local communities and what impact will that have on placemaking it arguably have the biggest effect on, on residential developments i mean sarah would be the expert on that but i think developers and the owners of, of residential will have to start being more people centric if people are going to be spending that three hours not in their office but in their home then all the focus that was on the immunity within the workspace, which the last few years, that's dominated the discussion, basically the kind of Google vacation of the office. I think we'd have to think about how do you bring that back into the home? Because there's no, there's no real worth in all those amenities, table tennis tables, pull your own pints at, at your desk, if people aren't going to be there. So I think it's going to flip the whole narrative about where it's important to focus our, our money and, and immunity on. Sarah, you've been offered up as the expert. Would you, do you have anything to add? Absolutely. I mean, I think in large scale residential developments, you do see a lot of amenities coming through. I mean, obviously, I'm talking particularly from a London standpoint here, but this is not a new trend, having gyms, having swimming pools, having cinema rooms, having residence lounges. Developers do 
work very hard at looking at what amenities their residents are going to want and need. I think we're probably moving away from the days of the golf simulator or ski simulator, I think we even saw at one point, moving more into spaces where people can socialise together, work together in residence lounges and sort of co-working spaces, something that was talked about a long time before pandemic hit, but really came into its own when you could when we were in full-on lockdown obviously socializing in communal amenity spaces wasn't wasn't possible but when you're able to work from home especially if you're living in a relatively small flat you need to get out and change your change your scene from time to time so being able to do that work in a space that is designed specifically for that but whether there are other people around you is a is a huge benefit and I think whilst the sort of working at home 100% of the time I hope doesn't continue forever I can't necessarily see it being for most people working at home any more than 50% even if it's people working from home 20% of the time schemes or developments where there is space to do that out with your own apartment really do come into their own it offers a huge amount of amenity and will therefore have value attributed to it by people looking at looking at buying apartments within these schemes i'd agree with that and ed from a rural perspective what's happening in the countryside we've seen a sort of rise in well, certainly in coverage in the newspaper, a rise of like rural co- co-working spaces, things like that. Yeah, and it's a great opportunity for landowners who've got barns they want to redevelop, which have come out of agricultural productivity. The best example of family who've done this are the Wilson family at Borough Court near Melton Mowbray. They've taken old potato stores and turned them into beautiful, beautiful offices. The the great thing about the story is that the, the daughter, Becky, has come back from London, come back from a, a career in sports and events marketing full of ideas about wellness and she's incorporated a gym a pilates studio a coffee shop and a yoga studio and she's opened up the woodland walks and the parkland walks and so people will have walking meetings in placemaking we talk about the power of 10 which is the idea that 10 shops make a street 10 streets make an interesting town 10 interesting towns make an interesting county if you boil that down to a rural space then it's 10 activities. So perhaps in this example, a place to go and have coffee, a place to work, a place to walk, a place to go to the gym, a place to sit on a bench in a beautifully manicured garden while you're having a break from your work in the office. It's a masterstroke in placemaking. If I have anything to say about it, I'm going to try and put more of these across the country because I think they are just so important for, first of all, the regeneration of, of estates and farms that have these assets that they need to re, um, re, reconceptualize. But also, I think it's so important for people who want to strike that balance of being able to have a really, really decent job working in a decent office environment, but at the same time, being close to the people they love, being able to get home before bedtime and seeing your children. It's, it's always been a compromise between those who are stretching themselves out to get to the city. What about having a third place? You know, The first being the home, the second being the office in the city. What about the third place? Perhaps it's an office environment in a rural context that's not too far from your home where your employers are happy for you to work flexibly 
be the dream, I think. It certainly for me is a nice sort of rural setting with an office not too far from my home. While all of this sounds lovely, we have to address this elephant in the room, which is communications infrastructure in the countryside. So I'm going to come back to you again, Ed, if that's all right, and get you to talk about digital connectivity, broadband, fibre, 4G, 5G. At the end of the day, we can have all these brilliant ideas about what can happen to the countryside post-pandemic, but without the internet connectivity there, I mean, is it going to work? It's a key point, and broadband really is the fourth essential utility. I go back to Borough Court. They have a one gigabit lease line, which is as fast as Leicester universities. They wouldn't be able to maintain the occupancy levels they have at 80% if they didn't have that one gigabit line. And it has to be one of the key investments for anybody thinking about um, this sort of diversification activity. I think it requires collaboration from wider stakeholders than just landowners and and, um, and estate and farm owners. It requires collaboration with local government, certainly with the infrastructure providers in the area as well, because until we get this right, there's going to be no ability for people to work in that manner. I would agree with that. But with the infrastructure such as masts and substations and things like that, do you think the countryside is almost ready for that level of investment in its communications infrastructure? Well, certainly we have a responsibility not to scar the landscape that we're lucky enough to live in. I'll take an example from um, the Kent AOMB. They're investing in undergrounding all of their existing overhead power lines. And it's transforming the, the countryside in those parts of Kent. Yes, it's more expensive, but we're going to take this seriously and leave a legacy which is beautiful. Then I, I think people should be considering undergrounding of these schemes rather than stretching more power lines across our open countryside. Now, circling back round to property, and this is a question for all three of you. On a sort of micro scale, how is placemaking affecting how homes are built? I mean, is it the end of open plan? Are we putting more walls back in? What's going on within the homes themselves? Placemaking is necessarily um, the end of open plan. Certainly, the pandemic that we're all living through at the moment makes people re-look at their spaces. Spending more time at home naturally makes you consider how well the space that you're living in works for you. Open plan has been very much in the driving seat of interior architecture for the last couple of decades and for good reason. It's led to much larger, lighter, more sociable spaces on the whole, especially in apartment living um, and smaller homes. This drive to remove all superfluous room division has meant that with the exception of bathrooms and bedrooms, everywhere else is one big space. Whilst that has been designed to be multifunctional, the dining area doubles as occasional work or school space, living areas are transformed into PE with Joe Wicks. I think as anyone who's tried to partake in video calls at the same time as homeschooling or even the washing machine going on, they're not designed for all functions at the same time. Whilst it's not as simple as putting more walls back in. People crave open light spaces in which to interact, but they also need spaces for concentration and contemplation. So we need to look at how you can, through design, separate those spaces and allow them to function at the same time alongside other spaces and a lot of that comes down to actually sort of internal insulation and what the acoustic barriers are like and so I think in terms of trends going forward you'll see a lot more emphasis on acoustic quality of 
internal doors, for example, which is probably not something that people had thought about that much prior to this. There are other ex- there are examples from previous pandemics of hangovers in design, like a fun fact that read in a few places when we're preparing for this podcast is the Spanish flu reportedly led to the widespread adoption of the powder room in homes, particularly in the US. And it makes sense. I mean, it's a place for residents and visitors to sort of cleanse themselves from the outside world before entering the home. The drive to open plan, certainly in apartment living, has meant that in a lot of instances, hallways and vestibules are removed from the design and you enter straight into a kitchen or living space. And this obviously maximises your sort of usable space within the living space, but it removes that area for people to sort of shed their outdoor garb. This has been something that's been raised by sort of international buyers in the past as they're used to, even in very small apartments, having space to remove shoes and coats, etc. I think that that could be something that we actually see coming back in to design. Does it mean the resurgence of the hallway? I don't think it's going to mean that we get fun wine windows like in Florence, as the as they saw in the Bouchette del Vino from the bubonic plague, but that would be lovely as well. well. I wouldn't mind that. Nick, on a larger scale perspective, are we seeing developers and planners build developments in, as a result of the pandemic, how they design things? I agree with Sarah really and I don't think certainly in the urban environment I don't necessarily think corona will be the thing that makes us change the internals of how we live or how our developments look but I think it has really the one thing which I think has really come to the fore during corona other than corona itself is I guess the green agenda and, and how people are looking at stuff sustainability in a more focused way so although I don't think it will affect how our flats look on the inside. I think it's going to affect how we want to live. So living with less waste. I think generally in the urban space, especially we want to live in better insulated homes. And I think from a development point, how do you build in those facilities so that people can live more sustainably? So more cycling infrastructure built into homes, better waste disposal, that kind of thing. That to me is a much bigger issue, which has come to the forefront of the agenda rather than Corona, which I think, I know it has had a huge impact, but I think within a couple of years, We'll be looking at environmentalism as a, as a much bigger, as a much bigger concept and thing. Well, I think it's sort of almost top of the agenda. Climate change is climate change. Have to do something. Going to you, Ed, in a in a rural setting, what are estates and landowners doing to uh, spruce up their placemaking in those settings? The first thing is is an education piece about really understanding how the benefits can be drawn down on an estate to understand placemaking and and how estates can do it in their own way is to look at, uh, wait for it, look at Harrods, the department store in Knights. You wouldn't naturally make the, the connection between the two, but actually it's the theory which runs through both sectors. And the theory is you need to bring together complementary business uses and put them side by side. It's quite simple. And so you go through the door at Harrods and you might go into a shoe emporium and then you go from there into the next unit, the business unit, and that will be something very, very similar, maybe handbags. And then from there, you go on and there's somebody um, selling macaroons. And so every vendor bounces off the other. And so there's a, a very sensible and, and sort of exciting narrative as you walk through. The the other thing that I think is fascinating about Harrods, which has a direct relevance to, to um, placemaking in the rural sector, 
is that they've worked out that people don't go to Harrods in order to to go shopping. They go there for the theatre of it. All of the scents, all of the all of the designs, the Christmas displays, and the way that they're wrapped up like a Christmas present until the beginning of December. It all adds to the theatre of it, and as a result people are very willing to pay much, much more than they would do in another shopping environment because they're going there for the theatre. And so we've got complementary business uses being one and we've got the theatre overlaid on top of really what's going on being the other. How can that translate into the rural environment? As a rural sector, we're quite bad at juxtaposing really quite uncomplementary business uses. Often you'll you find the co-working space next to a mechanics garage and there's been no editorial thought there. I think we need to be better at bringing together sensible bedfellows one next to the other and borough court was a good example co-working space the coffee shop the pilates studio the gym the woodland walks they've done that really well as to the theater that harrods has well as landowners we have this beautiful open countryside i'm I'm absolutely certain that taking down the fences and giving those businesses access to the woodland walks to the, the river banks and allowing their customers to come there will increase the productivity, the profitability, the resilience of those businesses as individual units. Let's not forget, Data of Farm is the sum of all of the units that live, coexist and, and trade within that boundary. So if they're doing well, the estate does well. And that really comes down to the core of placemaking. It's adding in, whether it be the theatre or the, the access to nature, whatever it may be, it's, it's reinterpreting the space you own and that you live in in an imaginative way that captures the imagination and the heart of, of the consumer. Can I build on that a bit, James? Is that right? It's just actually, it was talking about sort of bringing the walls down or bringing fences down. And it, one of the best examples of placemaking that I've seen recently in London is Television Centre at White City. The buildings that have been redeveloped by the development partners, Stanhope and Mitsui and Aimco, they have been there since the end of the 50s. So Television Centre was obviously built as a factory of television for the BBC. And so there's been that creative route in the area for a long time. It didn't connect with the wider community because there was a whacking great wall around it. And whilst people knew what was going on inside, they couldn't actually interact with it. So bringing down that wall and allowing the flow of people through the site has been a huge part of the placemaking and the redefining of White City by that scheme. And as we were touching on earlier, Nick mentioned that placemaking is about sort of bringing people in and that common thread. At Television Centre, they're very much stuck to identifying the creative roots and trying to build on that and I found it really interesting actually Ed talking about the power of 10 I was just sort of scribbling away and thinking oh I wonder how television center fits into that and actually it does you bring in the five or so different food and beverage outlets that they've got there all with a similar theme and no chain restaurants in there at all they wanted small scale independent guys with a bit of a creative stance or connection to a creative industry you've got Soho House which is obviously a key tenant in that development you've got the gyms and the electric cinema and very quickly I got to 10 different entities which all spoke to each other on a level and really helped bring people into a place and it's amazing how just making sure that you've got that common thread and 
knocking down as many barriers to entry as possible has such a huge impact on the buzz that is created and the ability of people to be able to actually come and experience it. So I think for me, ensuring that places are accessible by all, as well as having that common thread and identity to it is is a massive part in making sure that placemaking is a proper success. Very good. And I think that's about as good a spot to end as any. Thank you all for your thoughts today. The idea of placemaking it's all about communities and connectivity and how we can bring people together. We may have moved our communities online during the pandemic. and We may be using different types of technology to stay in touch in ever-increasing ways. But ultimately, as humans, we want to come together physically. You can build and sustain a community and the rest will follow. Thanks to today's guests, Ed. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Sarah. Thanks, James. Thanks all. It was really fascinating. <laughs> it was good. It was really, really good. And thank you, Nick. Thanks very much, James. Join me next week for the last in the series when we'll be discussing the market and using our research insights to look forward to next year. Goodbye.